So good morning. like to continue with the theme that we started last week, which is that of practicing with the body. You could say practicing with the body, through the body, in the body, for the body, (laughs) as the body. (laughs) And it's a powerful theme that we started with last time. What I want to do today is to review briefly what we covered last week, and then particularly today focus on uh, further detail on mindfulness of the body, and to then next week particularly focus on themes related to wisdom practices in relation to the body. And then the following week my intention is to bring in more compassion, loving-kindness, more heart practices in relation to the body, as well as giving some space for whatever themes may have arisen in our time together that need more attention. And as I mentioned last time, uh, we're taking four weeks with this theme. We could easily take four years (laughs) with body practices, um, especially if we actually work with them in a continuous and committed way. That is a very powerful and important area of practice, and I think one particularly crucial for uh, our times and practicing uh, as people with jobs and families and often um, busy moving around, that grounding in the body is so crucial for both developing and expressing mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion in daily life. So what I'd like to do in terms of the review is to explore the very briefly the three themes that I talked about last time. The first is the uh, importance of the practice with the body. The second is looking at our attitudes towards our bodies. And third was giving some initial practices that we might do. And uh, the the encouragement was for each of us, if we felt called in this way, to commit to at least one of, I think I named five practices last time. So I'll, I'll do that review and then I'll give some further depth on mindfulness of the body. And I'll also invite us, as we listen and as I speak, to stay as much as possible grounded in experience of the body. And this is actually one of the new practices that uh, that we've actually done from time to time, but that I'll introduce in more depth uh, later in the talk. I think a very crucial practice for any uh, development of mindfulness and really of our practice in in, uh, any interactive context is to have some inner awareness at the same time that we have outer awareness. Combining inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time. Challenging, because usually our attention just goes exclusively outwardly or almost exclusively inwardly as when we meditate. And I think one of the challenges to make practice real in our lives is to have the capacity to have both inward and outward attention at the same time. Not easy. 
And, and yet I think it's quite crucial. And so I'll invite that right now. And it's just, it's nothing too intense or detailed. It's to keep a kind of a light general awareness of your body as you sit and listen at the same time. You can see that one of the things it does is it takes us exclusive, out of an exclusive, more mental preoccupation. We can listen to talk sometimes more on the um, cognitive level. And, and that has its value. But when we also stay connected with our bodies, when we listen to a talk, there's a possibility of it reverberating in different ways, that connecting more with our heart, with our intuition, and really it offers a way of uh, being with talks or teachings in a little bit different way. So I mentioned that practicing with the body, I believe, is really crucial, maybe one of the most crucial kinds of development or learning for making our practice come alive um, in this culture at this time. Uh, that for many of us, the first instructions in meditation, which had us being able to be aware of the breath and the body, uh, for many of us were a revelation. For me, certainly, it was a revelation of how much preoccupation there was with my own thinking and how much I was primarily focused on thinking. I was in my 20s, I was a student, and I was supposed to be thinking a lot. <laughs> or at least that's, what, that's how education was generally conceived, right? And, 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 and so to actually break the trance of thinking was... Um, was powerful, and it suggested a whole different way to be, more connected to the senses. And my first retreats were also very striking in that I was um, able to be present mostly with my senses without many thoughts for days on end, and to be with the wind, or to be with internal body sensations, or to be with a meal, to be with w warmth, to be with pleasure, to be with pain, was um, tremendously educational. I think it's quite uh, powerful in our culture um, with this typical and maybe even increasing tendency towards disembodiment. I learned from um, Jack Kornfield a long time ago a wonderful quotation from James Joyce's uh, Dubliners, the short stories, where he has a line, and um, I think it's a story called A Sad Tale. He has a line about Mr. Duffy, who lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> I think that's one of, the, one of the first lines in the, in the story, you know, where I think of um, the Thai teacher, Buddha Dasa, who was asked about what he thought of Western culture, and he said, lost in thought, <laughs> you know. And so there's this way that our, our practice can uh, help bring us back to, the, back to our bodies. And in many ways, I suggested that uh, uh, we can see the returning to our bodies, and particularly the integration of 
mind and body and heart as not just personally meaningful, this kind of integration, but also culturally, socially, and I believe evolutionarily very significant. It's not hard to see that we, if we are able more to connect with the earth body in a powerful, deep way, this is part of the great healing of our times. And I believe that when we connect more fully with our own individual bodies, we're doing some of that work that um, has its counterpart in responding to ecological crisis. It's a, it's a kind of connecting with the body. I wanted to read something from a very interesting book on practicing with the body by uh, Reginald Ray, who is a um, teacher in the Tibetan tradition and a, a scholar as well. He wrote a very interesting book called Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body. And I wanted to just read one passage where he talks about the importance of body practice in our culture. It is my belief, he says, that we modern people can arrive at the full embodiment that has always been a possibility for our species. The impact and implications of such a recovery are nothing less than revolutionary. For to recover our original or primary body as our own involves experiencing the totality of oneself without judgment, living with a directness that is not filtered or distorted by the thinking mind, rediscovering ourselves within the network of relations with others, coming to awareness again of the primordiality of the natural world as a subject, and perhaps now, most surprising, beginning to sense and see what has been called the unseen world, the other world, the world of others, who, while not our flesh and blood, are nevertheless living presences around us and with us to inspire, guide, and protect. Recovering our basic inborn body has then profound implications for healing the self, mending our broken relationships, restoring a healthy relationship to our world, seen and unseen, and healing the planet. So I agree with that, that this practice of just coming more to the body, while simple, just involves being with the breath, being with the body, and, and developing from there, has profound implications. And it's interesting, I did a little bit of research. The, the word, uh, the actual word for body comes from the high German, a word, uh, botic, B-O-T-T-I-C-H. And it actually points to the connection of mind and body and heart and spirit. So the actual high German word, which must be from, you know, at least a thousand years ago, Actually, the word for body means brewing vat. <laughs> the body is a place, is a brewing vat for distilling spirits from grains and fruits. Interesting. You can go tell your relatives, I'm a brewing vat. <laughs> or, so... <laughs> But it also, I think it also points to some of the mysteries. And I mentioned last time how uh, our practice with the body does open up to this mysterious dimension that you know, we often take our bodies for granted. And practicing with the body, particularly in a meditative way, does open to two mysteries, to uh, the mysteries that we find in people who practice with great depth with body-based practices. And 
I mentioned a book uh, by Michael Murphy called The Future of the Body where he documents non-ordinary developments of the body from sustained contemplative body practices. We can point to what we find in, in um, the tantric body practices that are at the center of Tibetan Buddhism where the, the goal is to um, enlighten, develop a body of enlightenment that is full of light and in one of the Tibetan traditions the aim or the mark of a deeply realized person is when that person dies, the body becomes a rainbow. And there's documentation of that. It's not just a story, I don't think. So it's, but it's in any case, the, the inner practices develop a body of light, or we have the whole history of what are called the charisms in, in um, Christian tradition which are taken to be the marks of saints, that their bodies actually change. Where you have the Buddha, you know, has this head protuberance, which is the mark of an enlightened body. So I don't, in our culture, that's not so desirable. You want, you know, get enlightened, develop a head protuberance. You know? <laughs> but in, in many of the traditions, the enlightened body actually looks a little bit different in subtle ways. You know, and you, again, you can find that documented in, in various traditions. So it's a, it's a powerful area. The second theme that I talked about last time was the importance of looking at our attitudes towards our own bodies. And we can see these in a variety of ways. We can see how much influence we may be by the cultural attitudes that have tended for many hundreds of years and in some ways for several thousand years to split mind from body, to split, to split us off, to split mind and body and heart and often to devalue the body and give a higher valuation to the mind. Um, one clear expression of this is from William Blake. Some of you may know this. It's from uh, a passage where, he's, where he talks about the devaluation of the body and his voice is there to reverse what's happened. So this is what he says. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. So this is like in the late 18th, end of the 18th century, visionary William Blake, the poet. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. One, that man has two real existing principles, these a body and a soul. Two, that energy called evil is alone from the body, and that reason called good is alone from the mind. You get the split, right? Devaluation of the body. Three, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. So it's not just sexual energies, but the, the general life energies of the body. And then he goes on to say, but the following contraries to these are actually true. One, man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of the soul discerned by the five senses the chief inlet of soul in this age. So he's saying there's no firm distinction between mind and body, which actually is what a lot of cognitive scientists these days say very much as well. Two, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Three, energy is eternal delight. So I wanted to bring in that voice because it, it's, it's really a counter in many ways to what he takes to be 
the long-standing split of mind and body. And we can see that in our own attitudes. And I'm really more giving that, um, it would be interesting to explore what the meaning of that is. But I think that that is, I'm personally sympathetic to that, that, um, that critique, you know, and we can really, part of it is to look, what is the mind? Part of our explorations, how is the mind related to the body? How is the body separate? Is it just a different way, a different perspective? Are mind and body really separate, distinct? Um, it's one of the explorations we make. Um, I remember another expression of kind of this radical split between body and mind or even related to the earth. When I lived in Kentucky, I would often go out to Shaker Town. Uh, there was a big mansion there. You know, some of you know the Shakers, right? They were very large in the 19th century as, an, as a religious organization, but they believed that um, sexuality should not be practiced. And they did really, really well as long as they had really close arrangements with the, peop with the orphanages. Once that dried up, <laughs> it was over. <laughs> but they were very interesting. They had beautiful architecture. I also lived once in a Shaker village in Massachusetts called Tiringham. Quite beautiful furniture. And I, but the, I, I, I once got a postcard from their bookstore in Kentucky, you know, at their, and it said, clean your room. There is no dirt in heaven. This is for children. Big sign that says, clean your room. <laughs> there is no dirt in heaven. And I, I think, you know, I, be, I can be sympathetic to that, but there was some, some way that there was just, they found safety in this radical split between the body and the mind or reason or the soul, right? Expressed in these different ways. And so that's part of our cultural background. And so the second area that we explored was to look and see what are the attitudes that I find in my own experience about my body? Some of them might be culturally influenced. To what, to what extent do I take my body for granted? To what extent do I tend to value my mind more than my body? Um, or to what extent do I have personal attitudes based on my own history about my body? Might be more negative, more positive attitudes. What are those attitudes? To what extent do I have attitudes towards my body based on my age? or my gender. Um, and so it was really an invitation to look at how attitudes uh, turn up and to really explore them. It's a big part, really, I think, of practicing with the body, to see what's there. And I was mentioning that there are these several <coughs> areas where we can especially notice our attitudes toward the body. One of them is, is, it might be related to how we present ourselves, how we present ourselves to others, our self-image. What is my image of my body? And I invited us, we did a sh very short guided meditation last time, just to ask the question, what are some of my attitudes that I have towards my own body? Mm. For many of us, there are ways that we have negative attitudes. I think it's probably, again, very much influenced culturally and socially. I think probably for a lot of us, we went through being teenagers and may have come out of that thinking that our bodies were basically flawed and that there were maybe 25 people on the earth who had perfect bodies. And it wasn't me, and therefore, I'm not so good, actually. You know, I, I'm exaggerating some, but 
But I think, you know, it's a very intense issue. And I think I've, you know, the studies show that it's actually the most intense for teenage girls, right? That's where, and a source of a lot of suffering, you know, but I think it's there in some ways for, for all of us. So, and we have residues even at this age where what's, what's my attitude towards my, my aging body? How do I look at that? You know, and so it's really an invitation to look uh, carefully uh, to, to, these, to these attitudes. Because um, I think that much of this, m many of the attitudes we have are somewhat oppressive, I would say, and we can see whether you agree. But I think that in this culture, we have, we have somewhat of a cult of the young body or the young perfect body, right? That manifests in all sorts of ways in our lives, you know, in how we look at ourselves, how we judge ourselves, and a lot of these attitudes, I think, are somewhat oppressive, and they're imp quite important to look at. And I was, I was also reflecting, this is sort of a deeper issue, it's a very interesting issue to ask, why have we split mind from body, socially and from an evolutionary point of view? Why has that happened? It's mysterious, isn't it? Not all cultures do that. Why have we, why has there been a split between mind and body? I'm not going to give an answer here, but just to say that there seem to be two basic ways to respond to that. One is to say that part of the reason that there's been a split between mind and body is because the developmental process involves differentiation. And when the mind is totally merged with the body, the mind can't develop on its own. And so some people see, for evolutionary purposes, the mind needs to differentiate. And just like children need to differentiate from their parents, the mind needs to differentiate and be able to be explored just on its own terrain. And from that evolutionary perspective, we might say that that differentiation has gone too far. You know, the mind has been very cut off from body and from emotions often. And now, evolutionarily, is the time for integration. I, I tend to agree with that. You know, that it's a time for the integration of mind and body and heart, you know, and not to be so cut off from the earth and so forth. And that's a way to hold this, to understand why it's split off. Some others would say that we've been in, in decline ever since agriculture began <laughs> with the attempt to dominate the earth and to dominate the bodies. And others would give a little bit different picture, which is a little more pessimistic, that we've actually been cut off from the body and from the earth, and that we can <coughs> best be guided by studying cultures where those splits don't happen. I tend not to agree with that, but there's a lot to learn from that perspective, and to study cultures which are not so cut off. So I wanted just to name that. That's a, it's a whole... Um, somewhat speculative area, but it's a power, it's a really interesting question. Why do we have these splits, right? Why is that there? Why do we have these tendencies? It's, it's mysterious in a way. So, and then lastly, I invited us to, to work with some practices. And we looked at several of the initial mindfulness practices, mindfulness of breathing, uh, mindfulness of body sensations, and mindfulness of the whole body, particularly during the flow of the day, to really invite us to um, practice with those mostly familiar practices and to see if we could ground 
our practice during the time of these weeks more fully in the body. Also to bring that spirit of metta. I think I named five practices. The first, mindfulness of breathing. The second, mindfulness of body sensations. The third, mindfulness of the whole body. Many of us in our meditation practice, we do the first two all the time, right? Just to do those. So, but we can also, in our uh, ordinary activities, try to keep that awareness of the body like you might be keeping right now. We also invited to hold all of this, and we'll come back to this in a few weeks, with a spirit of metta and compassion. To hold our embodied presence with compassion, knowing that it's sometimes hard to be a body, to be in a body, to have a body, and so forth. And then the last practice that was invited was to look carefully at our attitudes. So I wanted to go in a little more depth um, about mindfulness of the body. And this is really the beginning practice, as you know, in the core teaching of the Buddha on mindfulness. That mindfulness of the body is the whole of the first uh, foundation of mindfulness. And that it's, it's very, very uh, essential to the practice, that awakening in the body. And this, again, um, Reginald Ray contends that the Buddha really encouraged a kind of embodied awakening counter to some of the yogic tendencies of his time, which would have the sort of consciousness just sort of escape from the body and go to some special realm where one would gain solace and freedom. But the Buddha's enlightenment, notion of enlightenment, was deeply embodied. And so mindfulness of the body is this core practice. And I mentioned that for him, on his night of awakening, he practiced mindfulness of breathing. That mindfulness of breathing has the, by itself, only practicing that has the capacity to lead to full awakening, full development of mindfulness and wisdom and insight. And one of the other core texts in the uh, uh, collection called the Majjhima Nikaya, which is this uh, large brown book, the middle length sayings, uh, this has both the foundations of mindfulness and also a text, very, they're all about 10 or 15 pages long, called Mindfulness of Breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta. And so these, these, are, the, this, these, this, these are central practices. So we, what do we do when we cultivate mindfulness of the body? I think it's, it's useful to remember what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is this very basic practice that we do of developing a present-centered, direct awareness of what's happening. We come, we develop a, an ability to be with our experience directly, to distinguish our experience from stories and interpretations, to be more with, have the capacity to be with sensations. In doing so, we develop concentration and stillness and a, an ability to be with experience in a non-judgmental way. And so we can cultivate all this through, through mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of the body. In the text, the Buddha gave 14 practices for developing mindfulness of the body. The first practice is mindfulness of breathing. The second practice is uh, mindfulness of um, mindfulness of the body, it's really identified. Uh, 
as the mindfulness of the body in the different postures that we're in. So it's mindfulness of the body in the different postures of daily life, being able to be mindful in sitting or in lying and standing and walking, and the ability to stay with that uh, in our experience. That's, that's what the teaching was. The third practice was mindfulness of the uh, full awareness of the body in a variety of activities. And this has been interpreted differently. I like to interpret it as mindfulness of the whole body, awareness of the whole body as we are in the midst of activities. And it's a practice also that we can cultivate on the cushion, which is something that personally I've, do I've done for a number of, I did intensively for about two years. It's taking this instead of the breath, just being aware of the whole body. And it got um, sort of burned into consciousness. As it, and so it, it's very, very powerful for daily life practice, just to be present, that the mindfulness of the body is there. It's a, it's a core way that we can really express mindfulness of the body in our daily lives. The fourth practice is to be aware of the different elements uh, that are reflected in the body. This would be the, the elements of earth and water uh, and air and fire. So it's to really tune in to the distinctive qualities of how do we experience a sense of earth in our bodies. It would be the solidity, the, the, the quality of form. How do we experience water in our bodies? It would be the sense of fluidity as well as the actual um, water that we know is most of our body. How do we, how do we experience air through the breathing process, through the contact with the air? How do we experience um, fire? You know, through the qualities of heat. So core practices that one might do would be actually to follow, to really study the body. And part of what that does, you can see, is one gets to see, oh, I'm kind of like the rest of nature. I have these basic elements. I can sit here, and, and this is a practice that one might do for 45 minutes or for a day or for a retreat, just to be there with the elements just to be there with the different elements as they manifest. Another practice is to be aware of the different parts of the body. And this is not taught so much. A few teachers like uh, Bob Stahl and others have begun teaching here at Spirit Rock uh, how to meditate on what are called the 32 parts of the body. And it's really to, uh, part of what it does is it, is it sort of deconstructs our sense of a solid body. And so we focus on all the different areas. And all of this, what it does is it tends to give a sense of the body as more flowing, as more something that is made up of many parts, and as having a lot of distinct uh, qualities. Then there are nine practices that we don't do at Spirit Rock, which involve uh, being with the body in the context of charnel grounds. I don't think we'll, we're likely to do these here, but the practices, I think more fully, they're practices that we can look at. And these start to go into the wisdom dimension of our mindfulness practice. Here we would be really try to tune in to the impermanence of the body. You see, what, a lot of what these practices are trying to do is to move on the level of wisdom to have us not identify 
so much with here is my body, it's solid, I'm going to live forever, or something like that. Or here is my body, I'm totally distinct from nature, I'm solid, it's simple, and so forth. And more to come to see the body as impermanent, as made up of all sorts of elements, as structured by all sorts of conditions that are moving in process, and to made up, made up of many, many parts. So it's seeing our body as less solid. And it's a pra- the, the practice with the charnel grounds are really about observing uh, decomposing bodies at different stages of decomposition. And so it's something that, again, we don't have to go to charnel grounds, which are not accessible in Marin County, but, but we can actually look at what does it look like to be with, uh, to be with dead bodies of animals or to be in the woods and to see how bodies decompose, how trees decompose. To study, to study those aspects really has to do with impermanence and uh, the reality of death, which we'll look at a little more next time. So we can do those kinds of practices. And we can bring all of these practices more and more into daily life, that we can work with awareness of breathing or awareness of the body in all sorts of settings. As I mentioned, I think it's really key to have some kind of body practice that we can bring into the flow of our lives. You know, people who do manual labor can often do that a little more easily. You know, if you've been on a retreat, you can know you can continue the mindfulness sometimes if you work in the kitchen, sometimes a little more easily than if you sit at the computer, right? We still are working out what are proper meditative techniques for computer work. <laughs> it's, a, it's an edge. But we can, we can do that. We can have a sense of, can you be with the body? Can you be at a meeting and just feel the hand on the knee or to feel the whole body, to feel that presence? We need something like that to, to be mindful when we're not on the cushion. How else do we do that? It's hard, right? You know, for many of us, we may sit on the cushion, but then the rest of the day, it just kind of goes by. Are we really mindful? The body and being aware of the body is a key way to bring that about. One of the ways that this really came home to me in a way that really had a big impact on me was when I was uh, talking with John Travis. Um, Probably was eight or nine years ago. And I think I was complaining and I was talking about how those monks and nuns, they, they, their practice is so supported. You know, we live out in the world, and practice doesn't feel so supported. And they have it easy, you know. They, just, they live in a monastery, and I think we were talking, he was talking about some of the Tibetan teachers he had known in, um, from the Tibetan tradition in uh, Nepal, and they have their monasteries, and everything is geared around practice, just, just as we sometimes experience on retreat. And you know, they go in one room, and there are all these beautiful paintings pointing towards awakening, and they p- might practice four times a day. And you know, here in the West, it's just you know, even coming to Spirit Rock, you know, it's just you know, Wednesday class once a week. You know, so what about the rest of the week? And I was complaining, and. And we, we had been talking about body practice, and he said something which at the time was electric for me. He said, let your body be your monastery. 
Let your body be your monastery. Meaning that if you um, have a body, you can carry your monastery around with you all the time. And meaning that if you have access to awareness of the body, you have access to practice in a way that's harder otherwise. I mean, some of us may have other ways that we gain access to practice in the flow of daily life. Some people really have uh, access to their hearts, you know, and kind of meet each moment with the heart. You know, something like loving kindness, there are people who do that, or some people might, uh, I have friends who chant, and they're, they're, chan- they're chanting all the time, right? That's a way to have the practice be there. And maybe some of us, we are thinking about practice, and that can be very helpful. But I think that the remembering awareness of the body and having the body be a kind of monastery in the sense that we bring the remembrance to practice with us moment to moment is a very powerful way to make this real in this culture. And that stayed with me. And I had been also doing a lot of body practices. And so that really had a huge impact on me to find a way, because that's the big uh, challenge, isn't it, of our practice. You know, we can have peaceful experiences in meditation. They can, they can, we can be relaxed. We can have insight. Maybe we do retreats. They're wonderful. How do you make this real in the flow of daily life? That's not so easy, is it? You know, how do, I mean, we can live ethical lives and be generally kind. How do you keep the mindfulness going so that our, we're continually practicing? That's harder. That's harder to do. And I think mindfulness of the body is this key factor this way to to make that happen. So what I want to um, invite particularly is continuing with these kind of practices. And I wanted to bring in one other practice that uh, isn't really found in this outline of mindfulness, which, because we could really start to extend these other kinds of practices. And I've added a few that I didn't mention last time. I added the practice of the four elements. I added the, the practice of being with bodies in the state of decomposition in order to reflect on impermanence. And I wanted to add a practice, this, this more interactive practice of can you keep some awareness of your body when you're in an interactive context, like right now? Can you keep some inner awareness with the body no matter what you're doing? Even just some, you know? Um, you're at a meeting. Can you be with your body? You're talking with someone. Can you have some way of returning to being present? I think this is crucial. Can you be at your computer and return to your body from time to time? That's harder. <laughs> you know. So I, I might recommend the practice that I do, that I've mentioned from time to time, uh, which is I do loving-kindness practice with every email. I've mentioned that from time to time, right? that with every email, I basically return to my body. And I take that as a practice, that I try to feel my heart and do loving kindness towards the person towards whom I'm sending the email. And it slows down the emails. But it really is a way of kind of returning to the body as a practice, because I just do it now. I return, in a way, to my body, at least in some basic way that breaks this kind of trance. We get, computers are about trances, right? I'm in this mental, cognitive, virtual trance. How can you, uh, how do we bring 
awareness and mindfulness to our time on the computer. It's a very, not an easy one, right? You know, and some of us spend six hours on the computer. How do you bring your practice? So I think the body for all of this is a crucial way to answer that question of how we bring, bring practice uh, into the flow of daily life. I just wanted to mention one or two other things, um, which is that it's helpful in looking at body practice and looking at mindfulness also to name, this came up in the questions last time, that there are certain challenges of body practice. And I just wanted to name a few of the challenges that come up when we do sustain body practice. One of them is that we have to deal with a mind that wants to dominate. We have to, we have to somehow work and have patience with a mind that doesn't want to let us be with the body, kind of the domination of the mind. And we can just do that by continually returning, continually coming back to the body. And can, in a way, we let the mind be more <clears throat> like a servant than a master. We let, we let the mind be a servant of this greater awareness that we're cultivating. Another challenge of body practice came up when I think it was um, um, Lori, I don't know if she's here today, but she asked a question about uh, when there's a lot of pain in the body. That's challenging to be with the body when there's a lot of unpleasant sensation in the body. So how do you work with that? And in, in response, we talked about some of that, but I just wanted to name that as a, one of the challenges of body practice, that we can learn how to be present with the unpleasant without adding to the tension, right? That's one of the great learnings of meditation. And John Kabat-Zinn and others have applied meditation to medical contexts where there's chronic pain and teach people in that context to be with the body sensations without uh, tensing around it, to, in a way, be in a relaxed way with body sensations when they're workable. And when they're totally overwhelming, that's the time maybe for medication or for something else. But a lot of the unpleasant body sensations may be workable, and it's very valuable to see how not to add to it. Another challenge of body practice is that as we go more deeper into the body, we find that there are certain places of stuckness and blockedness and even woundedness that come up as we go more deeply into the body. Those of you who've done retreats know that sometimes in retreats we will sit with unpleasant body sensations that seem to be places of stuckness. The body holds our wounds. The body holds much of our uh, the body really holds, we might say, our mind and our emotions in many ways. And so when we're doing body practices, if you notice that you're, when you're giving more attention to your body, that there are places where there's tightness or stuckness or the chest feels very tight or constricted or there's something that didn't seem to be there in the shoulder that I'm becoming aware of now, that is usual. That, is a kind of, that happens with body practices. And some of it's mysterious. Some of it will notice there seems to, there seem to be concrete memories connected with certain places in the body. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's just mysterious. Sometimes you'll be with sensations that are tight for a week at a retreat, then they'll just go away and not arise again. And who, what was that about? Hard to know. But just to know that if you give more attention to the body, sometimes there are these places that come to your attention, which are places of tightness. 
And uh, one of the, I wanted to mention maybe in closing, the, that one of the most uh, powerful ways that the body can play a role also in working with the mind, this is to come back to that earlier point of sometimes our mind, we get caught in repetitive thoughts. And we can use the body in that practice I've described from time to time here that I call the dropping down practice, where when we notice repetitive thoughts and our minds are relatively quiet, we can shift our attention to our upper body, our heart area, and just listen there and see if there's something, as it were, beneath the repetitive thoughts or driving the thoughts. And as we get more skilled in body practice, we can use the body as part of a skillful way to work with difficult thoughts, difficult repetitive thoughts, stories that we're telling ourselves. If you notice repetitive thoughts and bring your attention to your body, you will have some perspective. Otherwise, we just get caught and the stories repeat themselves, right? Ad infinitum. Does anyone know that one? (laughs) And so using the body as a tool for almost like uh, going beneath the surface or seeing what's driving repetitive thoughts is one of the most powerful ways that we can use body practice when we get skilled at it. It's a wonderful tool because it helps us sometimes, you know, I've just had a difficult interaction with my partner and I'm in, I've been doing repetitive thoughts around the same theme for how long? You know, half an hour, three days, <laughs> right? And, um, and you know, let's just say, for the sake of example, they're mostly around, huh? I'm right, you're wrong. This is a simple model which explains much of human behavior. <laughs> and, and when we notice ourselves doing that, we can do the dropping down practice. We have, we have to have a fairly quiet mind to do that. And so we move our attention to the body and we just let rest it there and we just listen. And sometimes nothing happens, sometimes... We just notice body sensations. Sometimes we might notice, oh, there's anger there. I'm really angry at my partner. Or I'm really sad. And some of us can access those emotions quickly. Some of us, it's very helpful to go to the body to get beneath the repetitive thoughts. And so as we work more and get more grounded in the body and more mindfulness of the body, we can actually start to use, this is really pointing more towards the wisdom practices, we can start to use the body for, to help us with, um, to help us really to cultivate um, uh, deeper understanding, to yet let the body access information that we couldn't ordinarily get through our minds. So again, uh, some of the potentials of body practice. So again, I'd like to invite us, and we'll come back to this at the end, I'd like to invite us to take the one or two of these practices which most resonate for you and do them during the week. Um, So I think I'll just end with a very short quotation that I also uh, learned from John, which is um, from one of his Tibetan teachers. It's a short one, so listen. (coughs) He says, one of his Tibetan teachers said, if the mind is in the body, no problem. (laughs) If the mind is in the body, no problem. So let's just sit for a minute or so.
So we have some time if there are questions or reflections. Um, reports from your last week, maybe, if you, if you gave some emphasis to the body. Uh, please, Jen. I tried doing metta to my body. Yeah. And I realized that in the past I was really doing metta to my mind yeah. in sort of a wishing way. Yeah. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. Yeah. And when I tried doing metta for my body, I immediately felt sensations of happiness and peace going away. Yeah. I didn't necessarily have anything to be directly happy or peaceful about. Yeah. But it gave me an access to the embodiment of those ideas that I hadn't That's great. Did everyone hear? Uh, wonderful reports about, I don't know if you heard it in the back, but wonderful reports about, from Jan about um, bringing the metta practice and more in a more focused way, bringing metta toward the body and that this seemed to open up uh, a kind of uh, sense of happiness grounded in the sensations of the body that was distinct from what she had experienced with metta previously. Yeah. So one, it's one of the practices which you really might want to do uh, as, one, as one of the one or two practices you do, or three practices. And did you, how did, Jen, how did you do it? Did you use special phrases in relation to the body? Just the ones that I usually use. So I didn't do anything special. I just sort of took it out of my, I made it specifically, I was specifically focused on my body when I was saying the phrases. So awareness of the body and then say, may I be happy. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, it really occurred to me that the other meta I'd been saying was almost like a wish for the future. Yeah. Rather than opening to an experience that's available in the present. Wow. So really doing um, through the body, really accessing the present moment. Yeah. That's great. Other, please. I have found that um, some rudimentary knowledge about body language has been helpful. You know, when you're doing this or whatever, I go, oh, that it's helping me see very clearly sort of things that, that might be more difficult for me to get to. Yeah, so, so it's really a reflection on how on st studying body language and how <coughs> when we study that maybe in ourselves and others we really see how the body manifests certain attitudes or and you know and can begin to um, not not that any particular body posture necessarily means anything but some of them are often mean some, something that um, and it's yeah it's really um, it's a great way to attend you know when I when I did um, I did um, uh, uh, several years ago, I did a two-year training in body-based psychotherapy uh, offered by Hakomi, um, which, which has a, a wonderful two-year training that they start every year, usually in March. And, and near the beginning of our training, we were invited to track ourselves and others using about 15 different dimensions. And so uh, we'd be with each other and we would track facial expression, 
body movements, tone of voice, uh, content, general energy, emotion, and so forth. And we, we, um, it was very, very interesting. And we could also see to what extent did I, you know, I noticed in myself, I tended, before I did that, to tended to focus especially, I think, on emotion and on the content of the conversation and not always tune into the body. And after that, I tuned in much more easily. And of course, the aim was to make it accessible to track in all those ways, which opens up life. It's a very interesting practice. It's something you might do, track people's bodies. You know, so some of our training was we got to watch, uh, I remember we watched um, Condoleezza Rice's body language <laughs> testifying before the 9-11 Commission without any sound. It was very interesting. One of the things we noticed very immediately was that she continually in her testimony was, was going, was shaking her head back and forth like that, as if to say no. It was, it's stunning when you actually tune in, watch, turn on your television and turn off the sound and just study body language. It's very fascinating. 90%, they say, is communicated through our bodies versus what? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard different percentages, but most of them are over 70%. That 70% of the essence of communication occurs non-verbally, right? And so this would be part of our practice is to tune in, where's my body right now? You know, what's the, what's the meaning of that? Or, and to, to track that, you know, so it's a, that's another dimension, isn't it? But it's interesting because um, in the text, uh, the Buddha talks about cultivating mindfulness of bodies both internally and externally. And we almost exclusively pra- practice mindfulness of the body internally. In other words, what's my internal experience of the body? I like to interpret a certain kind of mindfulness as tracking bodies externally. It's there in the text, but it's never really... People have a hard time knowing what it means. I think it might mean actually having a kind of mindfulness of what's going on more externally. So you actually have something in the text, like I was talking about earlier, where it talks about mindfulness both internally and externally, you know, at the same time. It's interesting. So can you, can you track uh, what bodies are doing and have that be part of your mindfulness? Yeah. Thank you. Please. Ming Ming Tongu, yeah. Qigong, yeah. Yeah, so it's Qigong. And I've been concentrating on bodily issues that I have. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed, because this has been over five, there have been five classes, so I guess it's been over about five weeks. And I noticed that kind of out of nowhere, first my right knee was really giving me a major problem, and then my left knee started. And it's like, I've never had knee problems. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And he said uh, yesterday that a lot of times when you really focus inside and bring that energy in, that sometimes other things will pop up in other parts of the body that's like the bad stuff trying to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what do you think? I'm curious about your take on that. Um, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's my take in two words. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, I think it brings more of the mystery. We do take the body for granted. And when we really engage in body practices like qigong or yoga or um, even uh, continual mindfulness of the body or looking at the relation of mind and body emotion or checking in with what's our body doing when we're emotionally distressed, right? And doing that, there's some, it's very interesting exploration. We're, in, we're exploring the mind-body-heart relation. We're, uh, systems like qigong and sometimes yoga and some of the um, Tibetan practices, they open up the exploration of the energetic body, which is, of course, something that's also studied in disciplines like acupuncture and so forth. And that, we, uh, we don't have uh, clear Western scientific understandings of how any of that works, right? And so it is mysterious, and I think there, is, there are ways that um, um, the body's very interconnected, and we can have something uh, manifest, like I was saying. We can, it's a very common experience to be on retreats and have different body manifestations, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, that just come from working with the whole system. Or in, I guess, a similar way that, um, um, you know, there are all these different levels. When we do those practices, sometimes we're doing something like a kind of purification of the body. That's certainly the understanding in many of those disciplines. And wherever there might be a blockage, you know, if we're doing a certain practice and there's an energetic block of some kind that could be way away from where we're actually doing the practice, that will manifest. So I think it's not so easy to understand what's going on, but definitely on the level simply of, is that the experience of many people? Yes. Maybe last, last one and then we'll, we'll close. Teacher that really emphasized walking. Yeah. And I found that returning to work helped me so much to find my grounding through my feet. Yeah. Just to say to us, find your feet. And I'd go back to work like sitting in front of a computer, standing yeah. in front of a group of people, being in a meeting. I could find my feet. It's that was a cellular remembrance of all that all those retreats that that's great. Did everyone here is uh, from practicing with a teacher who emphasized walking, and in this case, a lot of attention to the feet, the contact with the earth, that that was something that, your name again? Uh, Rosalind. That Rosalind was able to bring back into daily life. And this is really one of the clear fruits of body-based practice that I'm, I've been emphasizing, the way that when we do practices like this, where we get really a lot of attention to the feet, or it could be to the whole body, or it could be to the breath. It could just be you do a practice when you're at a meeting, let me feel my hands on my knees. I remember there was one Thai teacher who just got, he read these uh, instructions. He wanted to be a monk, actually, but he, had, he was a farmer. And so he said, I'm just going to be aware of my hands feeling the tractor on the, on the um, you know, the holding on to driving the tractor. And that's what he did for a year, and then he later became a monk. But it said he developed his mindfulness in that way. We can do it in simple ways. I have a friend who just feels 
hand on the knee when he's sitting or her feet on the floor. And what that does is it, it, it kind of um, it breaks up what I can call maybe in a neutral way a, a kind of a trance that we're often in. It breaks that up. That's the role of the body. And so we have perspective. It brings mindfulness. When we break the trance, and the body does this in such a powerful way that we actually can know more clearly what's going on. If I'm at a meeting and I'm noticing my body, I won't be so much in my mental stream where I just say the first thing that comes to my mind. And I'll have some mindfulness and I can ask the question, is that wise to say? Or I can say, where is that coming from? Right? And the body practice will do that. So I think it's of, your example I think is also contributes, I think it's of enormous importance to keep on developing these body practices so that they can have enough power to um, help us with our practice when we're off the cushion, when we're in the flow of daily life. I think it's a tremendous value and almost like the missing link for, for many of us to really help our practice be more there more of the time. So maybe that's a good way to end. And I'll you know, just, we'll just sit for a minute, but just before that, um, just to say, I'll just name the practices that we've done. Again, invite us to take one, two, or three, not too many. And it may be enough just to continue with mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of body sensations when they're predominant, which could take us over into eating or to feeling the body when we're embracing a friend or being outside with the cold or being with the heat and taking a bath, just to be with body sensation. Second practice. Third, having some awareness of the whole body. Can be a formal practice, can be an informal practice. We might extend to that the practice just to have some kind of awareness of our bodies as we're going about our days. It might be the whole body, it might be the feet, could be the hands, could be in particular settings. And I'll name some of the other practices, the metta practice towards the body. Could be done just a few minutes a day. Looking at your attitudes. And seeing if in an interactive setting you can keep some awareness of your body as you're interacting with others. Keep coming back, just could be again, the the breath, the hand on the knee, feeling on the chair. And so those may be the main ones. I also named the practice of being with the elements in the body and being, if if, uh, the situation is available, of being with a decomposing body of some kind, maybe particularly in the forest or plants and so forth. Let's just sit for a minute and we'll invite everyone to see what was helpful and set your intentions for the next week if this feels appropriate.
So remembering that we do these practices, these explorations, not just for ourselves, but also for others. We offer the fruits of our time together out beyond the walls of this building, out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock into the world for the benefit and the growing wholeness and healing and ultimately freedom of all beings. So thank you for your kind attention and thank you for your, your stories of your own practice. You can see I really love these body practices and I'm happy when, I'm very happy to hear these reports. Very good. So please continue and we'll focus especially on wisdom practices next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.